0: Well, uh, hi there. Thank you for joining us today in this wonderful event curated by Writers Qi. Uh, my name is Oliver, and I'm the Marketing and Communications Director of CCIR Academy, and we're an educational enterprise based in Cambridge, UK. So over at CCIR Academy, what we do is we provide a variety of online educational experiences where students get to conduct high-level independent research uh, on a whole variety of subjects with leading academics from the University of Cambridge and the University of Oxford. So the topic of this session will revolve around two questions: one, sort of, what is research anyway? And two, how can re- doing research help you as a student and as a person, as a person, grow? And we thought, what better way to explore these issues than by discussing them uh, with an actual researcher and an actual lecturer at the University of Cambridge? So. It's my pleasure to introduce to you, your speaker, Dr. Tom McLeland. Dr. Tom McLeland is currently a lecturer in the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Previously, Dr. Mcleland has held posts at the Universities of Glasgow, Manchester, and Warwick. His work ranges over the philosophy of mind, aesthetics, business ethics, and epistemology. And for CCIR, Dr. McClellan has delivered courses on the philosophy of business, the philosophy of artificial intelligence, and for the summer, he'll be offering a course on the philosophy of film. And in what follows,
1: Dr. McClellan will talk to you about the value of research and critical thinking. Thank, thanks so much for coming, everybody. And I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry about these technical problems, but we'll, we'll work through them. And thanks, Oliver, for, for explaining more, more about CCIR while I was trying to sort that out. So as Oliver explained, what I'd like to talk about today is, is kind of the nature of proper research. Um, when you make that transition from, from high school to, to college or university, um, research works in a very different way. Right. So what I want to give you today is a kind of flavour of what those differences are. So here are some misconceptions about research. If I say, what do you do when you do research? I think often people say, well, you kind of read the things that you're told to read. Like you, have a, you have a teacher who, who tells you to read some stuff and your research is just you doing that stuff. Um, also, if you're thinking about the purpose of research, why you do it? Well, here's a perfectly natural answer. You can learn what's been said about a topic and then write about it. And how do you do it? Well, what you do is you trust, trust expert opinions in the field. Now, this is all fair enough, and I think it will get you a certain way in research. But actually, once you move to kind of proper research, more advanced research, things change a little bit. So instead of just reading the things that you've been told to read, often as a researcher, you'll have to explore topics independently, right? So I might say to you, look, you know, this this week we're writing an essay on this topic, maybe a topic in business ethics or something. And that I might have some suggested readings for you, actually, you're going to need to find some things for yourself if you really want to research independently. So so I'm a full-time researcher. Nobody tells me what to read. I work it out for myself. And when you do undergraduate study, College study, you're making that transition from the kind of research you do in school to the kind of research I do, which is much more independent. Now, when you think about the purpose of research, that's another important difference. When you're doing research at an undergraduate level, it's not just about reporting what other people have said about the topic, instead, it's about developing your own perspective. So, the way I often think of this is in terms of a discussion, right? So, out there in the world, there's always a big discussion about whatever the topic happens to be Um, and in a way what you want to be doing is saying something that's more like a contribution to that discussion and not just a mirror that you're holding up to reflect the discussion that other people are having and then, how do you do research well yes expert opinions in the field are part of the story but it's very important not to just trust the expert opinions instead you're going to do something A bit more ambitious in real research which is to critically evaluate what you're reading okay so these are the three things i'd like to talk about today okay sorry it seems like my screen's unshared there so i'm just going to share that again Okay, so the first thing I'd like to emphasise is the nature of independent research. So, yes, when you're doing a course with us at CCIR or if you're doing a course at college or university, you will have a reading list. Okay, so to that extent, you are going to be kind of guided in what you're going to read. But how you explore it is up to you. There's so many different ways of approaching a reading list. You might decide what to read. Often a reading list will be a long list. And it's up to you to be selective about which things you're going to read it's up to you to decide what order to read it in. That makes a huge difference. But beyond that, it's very important for you to decide for yourself how to read it. This is something I'm going to touch on more shortly. But there's not just one way of reading something, right? You can read something incredibly closely where you analyse every sentence and try and reconstruct what's going on. You can read something very briefly where you just skim read it and just try to get the general gist of reading. Or you could do something in between. right? And one of the very important skills you learn as an independent researcher is how to pitch your reading for the task at hand. But like I was suggesting before, often independent research involves going beyond what you've been told to read. So it's not just a matter of looking at a reading list. You might read a, a set text, for example, but then think, okay, what have other people said about this set text? What have other people published on it? And you might Google around and go around the library and find some literature that engages with what you've read you might also find literature that hasn't specifically engaged with what you've read but that explores the same topic and finally you might actually find literature in other topics that's relevant now i think this is particularly interesting so um, yeah i teach um undergraduate and postgraduate students at Cambridge and what the best students do is they take a topic And then they find a different related topic and identify new and interesting connections between them. So, for example, I had a student who's just finished a piece of coursework on gender discrimination. And she looked at lots of literature on gender discrimination. But she also looked at some different literature on details to do with how language works and how we use language to affect the people around us. That literature wasn't to do with gender discrimination, but it could be applied to gender discrimination. One of the great things about her kind of contribution to the discussion there is that she was connecting two things that hadn't previously been connected. Right. So that's gone way beyond any readings that could have been set for her because she's exploring past the limits of what anyone's setting for. her Because she's researching independently. And one of the signs of a good student is that they're able to do this well. So here's how I'd summarize it. I'd say independent researchers are good navigators. So you've got a huge world of readings and sources out there. um, And thanks to the internet, they're all at your fingertips. But one of the things that marks out a good researcher, as opposed to a, a more middling researcher, is that you're adept at navigating that huge field of information that's out there and available to you. And that's one of the valuable skills you learn. There's only so far you can get with that at high school, so it's not always a priority. But you have to make a big jump when you're going to college or university. And again, that's one of the things that CCR can help you out with. You know, in the kind of courses I run and other people run on CCR, we develop those skills in navigating a vast world of academic literature and research resources. So next, why do we do research? Well. When you're doing research, it always feeds into a particular project. Right? It's very rare that you just sit down and read something for the sake of reading. It. You read it to some end. You're reading it for a purpose. So maybe you've been tasked with doing a presentation on the topic. Maybe you're writing a short essay on the topic. Or maybe you're writing a big, long dissertation. And as you proceed through college and university, um, the emphasis will often shift towards these kind of big projects where you might be writing quite a serious, long piece of work. If you go into postgraduate study, even more so, right? You might be working towards an 80,000 word doctoral thesis or something. Now, the particular activity you're doing, the particular end goal that you're aiming for, makes a huge difference to how you approach your research. So, the particular research project you're engaged in will influence what you research. It might determine uh, whether this particular thing is worth reading for you or not. But it also determines how you research it. Okay. If I'm writing uh, just a very short essay and I've got a big, long reading list, then I might be looking at some of those readings not in much detail. Right? I might be skimming through them to get the gist. Right? If I'm writing a doctoral thesis or something, then you go to the other end of the continuum right? and you start reading in serious detail. Now, this is, again, a really important research skill. So, you know, when I'm doing research, I don't read things in the same way i i um specifically and strategically pitch my research at a level that suits the particular thing i'm doing right if i'm writing uh, a research paper then there are some things that might be tangentially relevant and i'll give those a quick skim. there are other things that are very important and i'll read them three four times before finalizing a draft of my paper right If I read everything in the same way, I'd never get anywhere. I'd never stop reading. I'd never feel on top of things. So that's a very important skill to learn. So here's a good way of summarising what's important. It's not just about reviewing what other people have said on a topic. It's often about developing your own view. So this is what I was emphasising earlier. You're not just trying to hold up a mirror to what other people have said in a debate. You're trying to participate in that debate yourself to develop your own ideas, your own views, maybe to say something original. So if you're reading research with that in mind, then you ask yourself questions like this. Do I agree or disagree with what I'm reading? It's not just a case of reporting what somebody happens to say. You're evaluating it for for yourself. And here's another question you can ask yourself. How can I add something new to this? You might read something and think, well, they've said uh, X, Y and Z. But is that the whole picture? Is there anything else helpful that can be said on this topic? What could I add? What can I contribute to this discussion? That's very different to just passively reading something and trying to understand it. That's trying to make a genuine contribution to a discussion. Now, here's the final question, and this is what I'm always asking myself in my research. How might this help with the position I want to develop? Right. So when I'm researching something, I'm working towards writing a particular paper that advocates a particular view. So I'm not just reading this article wondering what does so-and-so think about the subject. I'm thinking what does so-and-so think about the subject and what difference does it make to my paper, to my argument, to the view I intend to develop? Does it help me? Does it hinder me? Have they covered the things already that I intended to argue? Can I build on this? And that's something you can do a lot more as an undergraduate student. that is really quite different to what you'll often experience at high school. So here's how I'd summarise this point. Researching for a purpose should be strategic, okay? You don't just get a bunch of resources and then look at them, right? It's much more methodical than that. You have to think, what are your priorities? What's the thing you need to spend the most time on? What's the thing you need to spend the least time on? How can you adjust along the way when obstacles come up? And one of the key differences between uh, a, a researcher who struggles and a really good researcher is that they can adopt the right strategies for their research. So third and finally, I'd like to emphasize the importance of researching critically. So how do you do research? Well, it's not just about saying, oh, well, this, this person's an authority in the subject. Whatever he or she says is true. Instead, you're going to critically evaluate your sources. So part of this is deciding which sources to read in a very careful way. Okay, so often you can just, we've all done this when we casually research, you just Google something and you read whatever the first thing is on Google. Right? You don't ask yourself questions like this Is this a reputable source of information? Okay, Wikipedia, for example, if I want to know something casually, I'll look at Wikipedia. I've never cited Wikipedia in an academic article because it's not a reliable source. Right? Anyone can edit Wikipedia and put misinformation in. Is the author an authority in their field? Often, one of the first results you'll find on Google isn't by someone who's an expert in that area. It could be just by some random person who happens to have put their opinions online. Those opinions might be worth listening to, but we should think about who they are and whether there might be somebody who's worth listening to more carefully. Also, is the resource up to date? Often you'll find great resources that are from a very reputable source, written by an authority in their field, but they were written 30 years ago. And things move on. Things move on fast in the world of research. So when you're picking what to read, you're not just going to carelessly read whatever the first thing that pops up on Google is. Instead, you're going to select your sources carefully. And then once you've selected your sources, you're going to ask yourself questions like this. What exactly is the author's argument? This is always one of the most central questions when you're reading a piece of research. What is this person or group of people trying to say, and why are they saying it? What are their reasons for reaching that particular conclusion? And then once you've done that, this is the more critical bit. We can ask, is the argument sound? Is it a good argument? What's their evidence? Is it plausible evidence? Does the evidence really support the conclusion? Once you get really good at that, then you're ahead. Also, what counter-arguments might be raised against it? One of the worst things you can do as a researcher is just to accept what you're reading at face value. Yes, the people you're reading will offer arguments and often they'll look quite convincing. But if you want to be a real critical thinker, you've got to think about what counter arguments might be raised against it. So the way I'd summarize this is that good research is an exercise in critical thinking. So this is a key phrase, critical thinking. Let me try and. Uh, specify exactly what I mean by this phrase, critical thinking. So if you're thinking uncritically, then you're not thinking in a good way. Like you might be thinking in a confused way about it, where you get different things muddled up, you're not being systematic. One of the hallmarks of critical thinking is that it's clear. You know exactly what you're doing. You're precise. You're not muddled. Another feature of uncritical thinking is that it's careless. Right? You, you lead to conclusions. You don't worry too much about whether you've made mistakes. Critical thinking, on the other hand, is very careful. So think about like the decisions you might be making right now in your life. Maybe you're deciding on which colleges and universities to apply to. It's very easy to think uncritically about those things. right? You just have some random ideas, a bunch of priorities. They just get mixed up and you might not be very careful in how you make those decisions. Right? But If you want to make the right decision, you need to do it in a clear and careful way. And that way you're going to reach much better results than you would do if you were thinking uncritically. Another feature common to uncritical thinking is bias. So we can have all sorts of biases. We might be biased against certain groups of people, bias against certain countries, bias against certain institutions. And biases can be very stupid and very misleading. So if, again, you're thinking about which college and university to go to, maybe you just have this bias that that name of that particular university just has some negative association but that's not based on any evidence or any reasons. That bias can be really misleading you and messing up your decisions. So instead you should be thinking critically in an objective way that isn't pushed around by your biases and your prejudices. Uncritical thinking is often quite emotional. Right? You might just have this emotional feeling that, oh, I just, I just don't like that college or something. But that can lead you astray as well. Sometimes your emotions do push you in the right direction. So we have to be careful listening to our emotions because sometimes they're misleading this is where reason comes in like, critical thinking is much more rational it's coldly methodical and that way it's not going to be misled by emotions that don't necessarily reflect what you should actually be doing now uncritical thinking is often oriented towards what you want to be true so i think we find this all the time right we often think optimistically about things so i remember this happened at the beginning of the pandemic you looked at the news and somebody said we're going to be uh dealing with this pandemic for three years and somebody else says we're going to be dealing with this pandemic for just a few months it's very easy to be drawn towards the second person right because that's what you want to be true but that's not critical thinking critical thinking says yes i want one of these much more than the other but i need to put that aside to get a the truth we are not naturally good at getting at the truth that's why people believe so many bad things so many erroneous things and the key thing about critical thinking is to keep you on that path towards truth another thing we do in uncritical thinking is make assumptions and take those assumptions for granted one of the things we do in critical thinking is to question the assumptions we make so we always make assumptions about people for example we just can't help it. If you're a good critical thinker, you'll question those assumptions. I think maybe I've, maybe I've misestimated this person. Maybe I'm biased towards them or I've thought carelessly about them. If you're a critical thinker and question those assumptions, you might be able to arrive at a more accurate picture of a person. So how does this relate to my field of philosophy? Well, every different discipline, history, art, physics, whatever, involves critical thinking. It's just one of the central pillars of academic research but critical thinking has a very special place in philosophy so not only do philosophers use critical thinking all the time whether you're a philosophy student or a philosophy academic like me but philosophers actually have developed the methods of critical thinking critical thinking is all about thinking logically and logic was invented by philosophers so here's um uh, Aristotle, focusing on Western philosophy here, in ancient Greece, Aristotle developed systems of logic where he identified the principles that guide rational thought. And then much later, the Cambridge philosopher Bertram Russell made huge progress in the field of logic. And what philosophers like these two did is identify what makes something a good argument, a good sound line of reasoning, and what makes something a bad argument. And one of the great things about learning philosophy is you get much better at spotting good arguments and spotting bad arguments you know when you listen to a politician sometimes it's not very convincing right? and sometimes it is convincing but one of the great things about philosophy is you get a lot better at being able to filter out the bad arguments and to identify the good arguments and that's going to help you arrive at the right conclusions. But the way i'd summarize this is to say good researchers think critically now, thinking critically doesn't necessarily have anything to do with criticism. Right? You can think critically about an article, for example, and agree with everything, single thing that's said in the article. But the point is, you've agreed to it after scrutinizing it closely and rationally and carefully, instead of just taking it at face value or being led by biases or first impressions. So, That's a rough picture of what it's like to do research at university, whether you're doing it as a student or as a researcher like me. Why does it matter to you now? Well, here's a few considerations. One is that colleges and universities want students who can make that transition from being at high school, secondary school, up to working at college, university, higher education. And here's the thing. Not every student who's really good at the kind of research that you do at high school is good at the special kind of research that you do at a university, right? Maybe you're somebody who's really good at reading what you're told to read and so on, at summarising what other people think. But when you have to start to work independently, work out for yourself what you need to read and so on, you might struggle. Similarly, not all students who are good at understanding what other people have said on a topic are very good at being creative and original and trying to make their own contributions to a debate trying to defend their own views and finally not all students who are good at reporting what other people have said are good at critically evaluating those things right so it's one thing for me to say oh um this this researcher said x but it's a very different thing for me to say this researcher said x and here's why they're right or here's why they're wrong so one of the things that colleges and universities are looking out for when you apply Yes, your grades are important and so on, but what they want is some hint that you're going to be good at these three things. These three things that really sort out um, students who are going to flourish the university from students who are going to struggle with that transition. So if you can show in your application that you're good at those things, you can make yourself a much better candidate. You can prove to these universities that you're the kind of person who's going to flourish doing proper academic research. And this, as Oliver's been explaining already, is where our organisation, CCIR, can help you, because our courses are led by university lecturers, so they're led by people who are professional researchers and who spend their time guiding students in the kind of research I'm talking about, independent research, highly critical research, um, research that has the aim of making an original contribution to a discussion. And it gives you the opportunity to do that, right? Yes, we'll help you out at reading lists and all that sort of thing. But really what we want to be doing is encouraging you towards independent, strategic and critical research, giving you an opportunity to do that that you might not have had already, uh, giving you a flavour of what higher education is like and putting you in a better position to apply for higher education courses. OK, thank you very much.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Tim. Um So now we'll open the floor for some questions. And uh, I would love to share a little bit more about our programs, um, but let's first uh, maybe field some uh, questions from the audience.
1: So I'm seeing uh, in in the Q&A section here, um, Samarta so Gharal has asked, "How much does emotion count in swaying the judges, or being an effective reasoning tool?" I actually
0: think might be from the previous um, previous. Oh, conference. okay.
1: Well, strangely, that fits with like something I was saying earlier. That's why I was misled. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. No, no, no. Um,
0: but so there's a a question about the application fee and program fee. Uh, so there is a application fee for the program. Um, so for the future scholar program that. Tom is offering uh, the Philosophy of Film course and uh, I believe the Philosophy of Artificial Intelligence course in the summer. Um, we also have 13 other courses, uh, from everything from computational genetics to mathematical logic to um, the uh, economics of COVID-19. So the costs for those programs range from between uh, 2000 450 pounds to around 2,950 pounds, depending on whether you make early, uh, you make the early bird admissions, uh, deadline, which is on May 14th, or whether you apply regular on May 24th. Um, for all our programs, uh, I'm glad Thomas asked about the, um, the scholarships. Uh, students are automatically considered for a merit-based scholarship. So for the future scholar program, the scholarships range everywhere from 200 pounds to 1,000 um, pounds. For the one-on-one program, the uh, the cost for the program, uh, the scholarship for the program, can go upwards of 1,500 to almost 2,000 pounds. And this is mostly because uh, the cost of the one-on-one program is slightly higher, but because the students that actually end up getting admitted through into that program, come through a fairly elaborate admissions process. Um, we tend to be quite excited about those students. Um, they have really interesting projects, uh, excellent um, mentor options, and really great fits with, uh, with our program. So we generally like to give quite a lot of scholarships for those students. We also have a financial aid system, and you can apply and through our program uh, since CCIR is conceived as a social enterprise, we really do try to uh, make our programs as accessible as possible for as many students as possible. So as for the question that uh, Ravati mentioned about the interview process, um, so all our programs do have a standard interview process. So after you submit your allocations, you'll be interviewed by Typically, the TA of the course, Tom himself, has conducted some, some interviews with students. I would say, and maybe I, I can hear your thoughts on this too, Tom, that the interview should be nothing to worry about. It's a fairly friendly conversation, and um, I don't know, maybe you could give some assurance about that.
1: Yeah, that, that's right. It's, it's just it's just a friend, friendly chat, not too long it's just to get a sense of, you know, what your reasons are for applying for the course to check that this course is a good fit for you. Uh, and, I you know, when I'm doing interviews, I tend to offer quite open questions, not the kind of question which has a right or wrong answer. I just want to hear you think and hear you react to to what I say and to different ideas uh, and to kind of get a flavour of, of how you'll do on the course. But yeah, it's, it's not something to prepare for. It's not something to worry about.
0: Yeah, and uh, to answer maybe Thomas's other question now. Um, Thomas asks, what's the difference between having a PhD as a mentor and having a faculty as a mentor? Um, Well, one of the interesting things about the Future Scholar Program is that you're actually being taught both by a faculty member and a PhD student. So the TA of the course is going to be a um, PhD student uh, in the same discipline, either at the University of Cambridge or the University of Oxford. Um, But... I, so I actually happen to be a, a PhD candidate in philosophy, and I would say, uh, one of the crucial, crucial differences between, say, having me lead a course on philosophy of artificial intelligence, or maybe more likely the philosophy of film, um, and Tom leading it is Tom has years and years of experience on me, and that experience translates in, in terms of teaching. Uh, in terms of the knowledge of the field, um, so PhD students tend to be slightly less, uh, I guess, mature in terms of their grasp of the materials and uh, their their under, uh, their understanding of pedagogy. Um, Tom, do you have
1: anything to add to that? Um, um, yeah, you know, I, I think you summarised it well. I mean, all the PhD students who I've known, who've taught, they've all been excellent teachers. They've all had a great deal to contribute and often, you know, may, maybe differences in their life experience. So age means they add something a bit different to what you get from a, a, an academic who's been in the business a bit longer like me. Um, but, but as Oliver says, you know, with, with faculty, you get the advantage of, of that extra experience breadth of research and breadth of teaching experience that they can they can bring to the course for you.
0: Yeah, that's right, and I think this is um, the 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 course the, the question that Puja and, and uh, Muskan have just asked is a really pertinent one, and is how does a, a program like Future Scholar uh, relate to admissions? Because that's a, a thing that naturally students will care about, and this also actually sort of connects with our uh, the, the earlier point about um, uh, the benefits of working with a, a faculty member. Um, our programs have a fairly rigorous admissions process. So our, um, the Future Scholar program is capped at five uh, per course. The one-on-one is naturally one student per course. These are all extremely intimate uh, and small class sizes. And as a result, our admissions rate is actually fairly selective. Um, this means that the students who actually come into our course are really excellent, really motivated, and they, um, they interact really well with the faculty. And because they're interacting so intimately and they have 13, 14 weeks of uh, lectures, conversations, uh, tutorials, and uh, writing workshops, they, generally speaking, are able to develop really robust personal relationships and in certain cases that, in many, many cases. If perhaps, in I'm not sure with Tom's case, but in most cases, that usually develops into um, mentorship relationships and even letters of recommendation in certain cases. Um, so, And that is one way that it definitely helps you in terms of your missions. Um, Uh, As for more generally, I think doing a a program really shows that you are ready for higher education. I think a big difference between high school um, and higher education is that you start having to think for yourself. you're no longer just digesting materials, no longer just regurgitating materials, you're processing it, you're thinking about it, and you're trying to come up with your own ideas. And doing a program like this, being able to write a complex research paper shows that you are able to do that. Now, uh, Ravati's Rabat, uh, question is, can this be done alongside an intense IV program? Um, absolutely. So, as Folk familiar with the IB uh, understand, there's the EE. Um, The extended essay is a big part of the uh, IB curriculum. And in a certain way, the Future Scholar and the one-on-one programs really are geared to, are a perfect fit for supplementing that process. So we've had students who have worked on their EE through our programs, so they come in saying, "Look, I want to do the IB. I want to, I, I'm doing the IB, and I want to write an excellent ED. And they are able to do that because they're working really with the experts of the field, who will, um, in this really quite hands-on way, um, guide you through the research process, um, give you suggestions in terms of uh, give you suggestions in terms of research direction and inspiration for Um, for potential directions of research. Um, uh, So, yeah, uh, Rajat's question is, what grade is apt to start in the programs? Um, So for our programs, uh, for the future scholar programs, we're mainly targeting high school students. And so we're looking at grades in the American system, what would be the grades nine to 12. Uh, So these four years are our primary audience. Um, most of our students tend to be, uh, in the last two years, uh, last two to three years of high school because our courses are fairly academically advanced and rigorous. Um, however, the reason why we actually do not even have a strict age limit on the course is because we, uh, want to stay open to the 13-year-old one-year kid. Um, if we have a brilliant, uh, 12-year-old philosopher who's, already read all of Kant, we will be more than happy to take him in. Um, So uh, RM has asked, which streams do you specialize in? Is it only STEM? Uh, So no, Uh, Tom is uh, offering two courses in the humanities. We have courses, we have four courses in the humanities, four in the social sciences, um, I think three or four in uh, the STEM field. And in addition, we also offer courses in Business and Entrepreneurship um, and also Computer Science. Um, uh, Prusha asked, how long is this course and how long the sessions are each week? So the Future Scholar program is 13 weeks. Um, each week, you're interacting with your faculty and your TA each for an hour. In addition to that, you'll have readings and work to do in, uh, in your own time and uh, typically that adds about maybe two hours more work per week uh, in the earlier period and maybe a little bit more as you start developing the research paper uh, for the one-on-one course it's uh, a lot more flexible because that's a the program that's one student one mentor and one project it could be 16 weeks long meeting one hour a week. It could be eight weeks long meeting three, three hours a week. That's really up to you. And that's sort of the nature of that specific program. Um, RMS, is there an eligibility criteria other than age? So um, I briefly mentioned earlier that we have a fairly rigorous admissions process. So we're looking for academically strong students, but beyond that, we're looking for really intellectually motivated, curious students. Uh, we want students who are passionate about a uh, passionate about a subject, passionate about a project, and who really do want to learn for their own sake. Um, uh, Anushka asks, what does the course culminate in exactly? Uh, so, for a course like Tom's, um, you are gearing up for a research paper. Uh, for about so Everything in the course is being built around this final goal. Uh, the readings you, uh, you, you digest in the first half of the course are building up your foundations. The latter six, uh, six to seven weeks of the course, you're writing your research paper, being guided through how to write that, being criticized, and being, having a writing workshop towards this ultimate end. Um, the research paper varies in length, uh, STEM fields tend to be a little bit shorter, maybe uh, humanities a little longer. Uh, but Tom has had students who who's written impressively long and complicated papers. Uh, in certain cases, they've even been published. There's a um, I keep uh, thinking about Simon, whose incredible paper about trust trust in blockchain was actually published last year, and he, he wrote this. Uh, wonderfully elaborate argument about how uh, we can use the philosophical uh, literature on trust to analyze the development of blockchain and its impact in society. Um, so Musk has asked, "What would be the fees?" Um, so all our fees are available on our brochures, um, which you can access later by visiting our booth. But briefly, the fees for the Future Scholar Program range from uh, 2200, uh, 2,250 pounds upwards to 2,950 pounds, depending on which course you take and when you apply. Um, Meghana asks, could it be a research topic that you choose for the E or is it among the topics that you offer? Um, I'm not exactly sure about the, what, what you mean about this question. Economy. Maybe you can rephrase it and I'll uh, answer some of the other questions first. Uh, Does this course start on a fixed date? Uh, yes. So the future scholar course is set to start on June 5th. Uh, the application deadlines uh, are May 14th for early admissions and May uh for, for regular uh, admissions. Early admissions means uh, you have greater access to the scholarship pool because every session you have set scholarship pool, and once that runs out, it kind of runs out. But we, we've we been expanding our scholarship opportunities uh, for the summer uh, session. We're aiming at a 50% uh, scholarship rate. Um, in terms of one-on-one, uh, that one is start date flexible. Uh, so if you're worried about school, event, uh, school exams and assignments and so on, if you have say, a goal to get published by the time you're applying for college uh, in the winter, then that might be something you want to look into. Um, Then we can work around your exams, we can work around your assignments, we can aim to finish at a particular date. And that leads naturally into Anushka's next question, which is we do help with the publishing uh, process. Uh, So the academic coordinator team uh, will guide you through the publication process. They will... um, They will uh, direct you to journals that are more likely to to publish you um, as a high school student, so undergraduate journals, graduate journals. Generally speaking, uh, we don't, uh, as a program, we don't uh, guarantee publication because we believe that the programs that actually do that tend to end up submitting to shadier, less trustworthy journals, so we we now sort of shy away from that and we're really trying to direct students to um, graduate conferences and undergraduate journals and part of the purpose is to just sort of help them understand how publishing works. And for a high school student actually, being able to publish even in an undergraduate journal is quite the achievement. Okay, so Meghana uh, rephrased uh, their question, and it writes: "Say I choose my topic to be trusting blockchain. Would the course be around uh, be a, uh, be about helping me with a particular topic, or a general theme to work towards developing a research paper?" Okay, um, so if I understood that question, I think our future scholar courses are built around specific topics. So Tom is teaching, for instance, a class on the philosophy of film. There will be general lectures, general readings for the first seven weeks, and the latter latter six weeks are focused on developing your own research paper. Now, because the courses are so small um, and because they're so intimate, suppose you have a topic already that you want to do for the EE, and you come in with this topic And it's related to the subject, the general topic of the course, which typically is fairly broad. The philosophy of film, for instance, philosophy of business, all really, really broad subjects. And you can communicate with uh, your faculty member uh, at an early date and say, this is sort of what I'm interested in already. And throughout that time, you'll be having conversations quite naturally that will be gearing you towards this ultimate goal of yours. I'm, I'm sure uh, uh, the, the conversation and the course will sort of just grow really quite organically around uh, your interests If, if I'm, I'm not sure if that answers your question um, okay so um, there are a couple questions in the uh, the Q&A uh, block. Uh, Manvi asked, for 2021, are the courses on online? So I should mention that all our courses are online. Um, I, I, I apologize for not making that clear maybe earlier. Uh, so all our, all our courses are fully online, and um, uh, they will be for 2021 and going beyond. Uh, Madiha asked, uh, could you please elaborate on the scholarship processes? Uh, so there's actually, be, uh, for you guys, no process. As long as you apply, uh, you will be automatically considered for the merit scholarship. Uh, we'll look at your uh, your academic materials, and we will look at your interview. And on that basis, we'll decide how much of the scholarship we want to offer you. Um, If you are interested in applying for financial aid, you'll have to go through a separate process um, and fill out some forms, Uh, but that's also fairly easy to navigate, and if that's something you're interested in, we would happily walk you through that. Um, uh, Priyanka says um, uh, how can a ninth grader get a head start? Um, Well, I'd say if, if if the question is how can they um, uh, apply for the program uh, in, in terms of admissions, I would say just give it a shot. Um, in, yeah, so I, I, I don't know, I guess, what else to say in terms of getting a head start for the program. Um, but I guess in terms of research more generally, I do think, research to a, to a great extent is something that you learn by doing um okay so there there are a few more uh, people asking about the cost of the program um uh, uh again the, the the cost is from 2250 pounds to 2950 pounds for the future scholar but all that information will be on the brochure, so you'll be able to access that through our, through our booth. And I really do encourage you guys to visit our booth because we also have put up Tom's presentation there because people were requesting it earlier. And we also have a lot more materials for you to review there. Um, S2 as ask can a student that already graduated high school take, uh, take the course? Absolutely. We've had kids who were in their gap year um, and take – the Future Scholar course, the one-on-one course is actually also open to undergraduates. We've had undergraduates who, who've taken that course before. Um, yeah. Um, so, the... Uh, Mekana asked a little bit more about the financial aid process. Um, so, because you're automatically considered for the merit aid, uh, the, the, the merit scholarship uh we will take that into account and then evaluate you on a case-by-case basis Um, so i think the uh the reduction of the course i think for historically we've had students who ended up paying somewhere between a, a, a thousand pounds at the end when they've gotten the both the scholarship and the financial aid package Um, We are aiming to expand our financial aid uh, processes, um, but so we're really trying to um, help as many students uh, who who have the merit to attend our programs uh, to to be able to access these resources. Um, So, yeah, so in terms of the details of the course structure and schedule, I really do encourage you guys to to take a look at the brochures uh, because that's sort of where um, it gets into the uh, the a bit more of the nitty gritty of which part does what and how the course is being designed and structured because we've actually put quite a lot of effort into designing these courses uh, so that they are suitable for students who maybe don't have a really strong uh, background in research and who are learning to do research for the first time who uh, maybe don't have the 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 knowledge in a particular field to to, uh, build up the research project quite yet. Um, um, There are a few questions about you. um, Tom, do we know how much time we have left in the session?
1: I um, will um, just double check. I'm, I'm pretty sure we've um, we've exhausted our time actually because I, I see that Meredith is here
0: and I wouldn't want to be taking up any of, um, of their time. Um, yeah
1: um... Okay
0: so. Meredith, do you, do you know when um, when you guys are going online? Yeah, I w- uh, the presentation that I'm giving was supposed to start at um, uh, seven o'clock. Okay, I'm I'm terribly sorry. Um sorry. Right. I wanted we- to make sure that you got to answer all the questions
1: that that you had.
0: Okay. Uh, well, in that case, I'll actually wrap up. Um, Uh, I invite all of you guys with your questions to come to our booth. Uh, We'll be sitting there waiting for you guys to answer all all of the questions you guys might have. Uh, But for now, I think we should uh, hand things over to Meredith. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, it's been a a pleasure hosting you guys. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. McClellan, for joining us and giving us such an informative uh, presentation.